Welcome to the Raindrop Corner Podcast, an affirming space for people who seek to enrich the human experience. This is a place where real-life superheroes and creatives get to share their magic without censorship. And I'm your host, Kay. This week's guest was Professor Sex, aka Angel Russell, someone who I love and who I'm friends with outside of the podcast. I have been an admirer of their work for quite some time, and it was just really cool hearing about how they navigated finding a bridge between their very religious upbringing and also kind of breaking free from some of those opinions that they had early on in life and how they shifted and grew as they became an adult and as they had experiences and some of those experiences no longer aligned with their upbringing and it was just really cool to see that journey and also have a conversation about what affirming and inclusive spaces look like in the support that we should be giving in our society. So I hope that you all enjoy this episode and without further ado, here is an ode to our guest. This box that unfolded left me covered in dust, but I had wings, one that shimmered with gold and titanium and the other unobtrusive with wildly feathers poking from my backside. Two dueling limbs attached to my flesh, a kind of ironic duality that laid a knowing blueprint, some kind of map, daring me to disseminate and unlearn against the backdrop of falling from a binary to which tiny humans called me mother. A bigger human called me a wife. Relationships transformed and repurposed. Am I an imposter in this body? in this world, walking around, educating, as I almost forget to breathe. I am fortified, but also a mortified gauntlet, and I want to roar. I do, but my back aches, my head splinters in pain, figure and form writhing as evolution just blooms. My voice booming down like the good book premeditated, true sentiments in someone's insecurity prompting agitation. Watch this, their anger swell as I prepare my proclamation, rising from the ashes, celebrating my reanimation. Behold the professor radiant in a product of adverse consecration, all in the witching hour too purpose becoming form as the student becomes the teacher clawing at walls has yielded a resonant calm one that alters and shifts to chaos but i hold it in my hand because the universe will conspire and in this story i hold the key to my desire I'm super excited to have you on this podcast. We've been trying to do this for the longest time and we finally found each other. The timing is what it was meant to be. Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. And today with us, we have Angel Russell, also known as Professor Sex. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the Raindrop Corner podcast today. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to give you a condensed intro because I really want to get back to basics in this podcast. I want to talk to you about things that maybe you don't necessarily get to talk about as much. People see the name Professor Sex and it's exciting. It's, it is a like, it makes you curious as to what do you do? Why do you have that name? So obviously with Professor Sex, you are a certified sex educator. You spend time curating safe spaces to not only raise awareness about sex education, but to also create affirming spaces. You're also partnered with Tickle Life, which is basically a platform that curates safe spaces around sexual wellness, education, and freedom. And then you have your own audio-visual production company. So basically, you are a person of many hats. <laughs> I am, I am. That is, that is a lot. Um, that's what happens when you do sex ed. Uh, you... Well, a couple things happen. One is that not a lot of, there's not a lot of people like lining up to 
uh, hire sex educators and pay them the big bucks. You mm -hmm. know, like that's not, um, in the public health spec sector, there is a space for health educators that are focused on sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're not coming to it, I'm coming to it from the field of psychology. And so even though I have public health in my work background, um, my academic expertise is coming from somewhere else. And so I, I kind of have to work for myself. And so that means that having many hats is part of how we're able to pay our bills just from a practical perspective. But also the other thing that happens is because there's not a ton of us doing this work. A lot of the like structural support you need to like do the kind of work we do, things like audiovisual production, things like uh, you know having your website, things like whatever, all those things, you end up having to do yourself. And so we had noticed that a lot of once you do anything and you're at all good at it, your colleagues are like, teach me how you did that. And so we thought, well, we can be helpful to people. We've, we've hacked a couple of these things and so we can help. And so that's how the production company actually came about was just us wanting to kind of share the goodies with other people doing this kind of work so that we weren't all reinventing the wheel, you know, mm -hmm. adjacent to each other. <laughs> so I think that's really cool too. Cause like when you, when you identify that there's a need, people in those spaces like to learn from people that make them comfortable because there's tons of audio and production based companies out there. But a lot of times like you need to work with people who believe in what you're doing and are comfortable with it. Yeah. It's that are comfortable with it part. Um, it's very challenging to find uh, civilians who will work with um, folks who are doing sex education work because mm -hmm. it feels sex work adjacent to a lot of people and there's such a stigma against sex work and sex workers and I just want to say like sex work is real work and I'm a big supporter of sex yes, workers. Yes it is. But I also I also know that what I do isn't sex work mm -hmm. but people outside the community don't know that and people outside the community see what we do and see it as being similar or the same as sex work and so that same stigma and the same censorship and the same regulations that constantly throw sex workers under the bus sweep us up in those issues too. And so uh, sometimes uh, working with other se with sex educators who wear other hats, who do other professional services, is just part of how we have to. Like the people I use for printing um, are also in the industry. The people I use, like I, we, I have a large network of people who. Um, are doing this kind of work and we're all professionals at different levels um so and we all sort of share each other's work you know around because that kind of support we, we had to kind of create the network ourselves because it just didn't exist for us out there that's really cool that you have that kind of camaraderie because a lot of times like when <laughs> when there's a need in a certain community it's very easy to like make it competitive instead of making it an environment where you're working in tandem with That's other colleagues. <laughs> so, oh, you have to find your people. <laughs> you decided to be a sex educator and to yes. take all of the knowledge that you've gained to help not only help educate other individuals, but to also create safe spaces, whether it's I know you've done work. Um, in terms of trauma and mental health and being an advocate in that right. And you've done other work as far as curating different programs for different grassroots companies and nonprofits. So with that in mind, tell me about Little Angel. How did you get to this point? What were experiences that you had that led you to want to do this kind of work? Oh, that's such a wonderful, I know he's ever asked me that. Um, what a great question. I, I, I was actually just talking to some friends of mine from high school the other day. Like I have a couple of friends that I knew as a kid that were still really good friends now. Mm -hmm. And they actually, one of them actually said to me, if you could go back in time and tell us as kids that I'd be getting this like sex advice from you, I would melt. And I was like, yeah, I like, if I could tell little angel where adult angel was like, I don't even know that my brain could have computed um that by i grew up in a deeply um conservative part of california um in the middle of the desert mm -hmm. and i was raised by youth pastors 
Um, my dad was head of our worship ministry. My mom was head of our women's ministry. They both together were on part of the staff of people who handled the youth ministry. And so um, my parents, I mean, to their credit, a lot of what I learned about holding safe spaces for people and about activism mm -hmm. came from them. Um, I watched our house was a revolving door of young people in need who needed a safe place to go because they didn't have it at home, who needed a safe place to go because they had run away, who needed a safe, like, and so we constantly had people in our home um, of varying ages that needed a safe place to be where someone was just going to love them. And so I learned that um, as a little person that, that there's just like a way you treat people. And so even though some of the um, values of my conservative upbringing don't jive with the very progressive person that I've become, uh, that they, the, the values that I was raised with, some of them really did plant the seeds into becoming who I was because my parents at their core, regardless of how they vote, at their core, my parents are activists mm -hmm. and my parents um, are, they are the kind of people that will literally give you the clothes off their backs and they are the kind of people that will, um, there's always a seat at their table, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter what you've done. And so they, um, they taught me that. They taught me that kind of love for people. I remember I always tell people this um, because I think it's a, it's an interesting story in terms of where I've come from in terms of my beliefs, but also how I was taught to fight for my beliefs. So I was, my mom is very pro-life, mm -hmm. like, um, like pro-life activist level pro-life. And so my mom had me as a kid on the side of the road, like with pro-life people, like protesting. Oh, wow anti like we were anti-abortion protesting anti-abortion like we would make signs with the other protesters and like she and so I was going to a protest recently for something and my mom made a comment I'm like you're the one who taught me how to protest and I like like kind of threw it back <laughs> at her and she sort of laughed like you know neither one of us could kind of picture what I would take that information and do with it mm -hmm. but I remember my my mother teaching me like you believe in something and you fight for it and that's what matters and you fight for people who need you to fight for them and and um you you speak for people who don't have a voice and you elevate people who need to be their voice to be elevated you know and so my parents kind of taught me to like mm -hmm. use the privilege and the the power that you have to help people and um and and it's um, so yeah, little, little angel was, I, I grew up taking care of people or watching people be taken care of and learning how to take care of people. And I learned how, um, to, to be an activist and I learned how to do all of these things. And then in terms of interests, I was just this little nerdy, I read all the time, constant reader, just constantly consuming any literature I could. So I always wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was always destined for, um, academia in some way I think that was always going to be a part of my life so I I guess I've not ever um, been able to like articulate it like that but yeah I I was this little quiet conservative virginal church kid who had these very um, specific ideas about the world and those ideas have have shifted as I've learned and as I've moved through the world but how I kind of go about the way I treat people and how I go about standing up for what I believe in, that's that's always been a part of me. So You unintentionally, like, created the perfect segue without even realizing it. I was gonna... It's great that happened. Awesome. It, You're it... welcome. <laughs> I was going to ask you, with that in mind, you said that a lot of your ideas and values changed as you got older. What are some of the biggest untruths that you learned during that time as you were evolving and kind of growing? Um, well, this probably explains a lot about what I've prioritized in my life as an adult, but I had to really unlearn some things about, some concepts about what it meant to be like a person of value. I was definitely raised in an environment of that part of your value was tied to sexual behavior, you know, and that you, um, that, you know, sex before marriage was a sin and that your relationship to your future spouse, which at that time would have been a, a man and a woman. And so mm -hmm. I was being raised that my relationship to my future husband was going to be 
and how, how did they talk about it? That it was like an earthly example of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. That there was this idea that like you stayed pure until you got to that marriage because it was like soiling the temple of God to to be impure before that point. And so there was this like holiness. And I, I still believe that there's um, a sacredness to our sexuality, but I believe we own that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that power is inherent in us. I don't believe it comes from something else or someone else. I, I believe that we we already have all that power and we already have we already are the temple already. Mm-hmm. Like and and it's it's our temple to be in and to worship to as we see fit. Like it's ours. And so I I, I still like I said I think that I think they were on to something with this idea that there was something sacred to be found in the sexual. I just. I just really believe it was misapplied and it was used to shame and it was used to um, really be very oppressive. And so when I um, I actually lost my virginity to an assault and there was a lot of guilt and shame around that for me because I, through no fault of my own, had now like soiled the temple. Mm -hmm. And so then I went through like kind of a phase of like, well, then what does it matter? And so I don't know that a lot of then I just wanted to like take my power back right and so Mm -hmm. I wanted to just make um and I think I had given my power up to the situation like looking looking back on it as like a more mature person who's moved through my trauma a little more a little differently I think even then I said yes to a lot of things that I don't know if I meant the yes for I just was saying no hadn't worked so I might as well say yes kind of a thing you know and so I just I went the pendulum swung in different directions and so I think had I been offered some information on sexuality that was a little bit less that was true had I been offered some 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 truth about like that my value as a person isn't tied up in who I sleep with or how many people I sleep with or how I sleep with them and that my value as a person that virginity is not a a medical term and that um there's no way to check for someone's virginity and that like like i i learned some things about myself and my body and the way that i relate to other people that turned out to just be untrue and had i been able to um wrap my head around their truths before learning the hard way that they were untrue i think that um it would have been a little easier go of it but i now am very determined to create a safe space for people to learn those things and for people who are healing from because I meet a I meet a lot of people who are like oh my god I was raised the same way and so they're healing from kind of rejecting those ideals and rejecting those ideals there's a lot of there's some grief to that because you're mm-hmm. raised that like this is how you're getting to heaven and you're raised with like this is how this is the way that that God will love you that, that God loves you in this form and no other forms and and so you feel like you're losing this thing that you're taught is supposed to be the most most important thing in your whole life, this relationship with this version of God that someone else has planted for you, you know? And mm-hmm. so, and it's, it was so tied up. It was so tied up in my relationships. It was so tied up in sex. It was so tied up in um, how I related to other people. And so I'm learning that was, there was a lot of grief around that. And so I have been able, I mean, I'm still working on it. I'm still unpacking those bags. Um, it takes it's very time. much reflected. It's, it, you know, I, it's, it's a lot reflected in my relationship with my parents because they're still, in many ways, very much the people who raised me. And so, you know, I, I see it now in their relationship with my kids. And I see, like, I now get to decide, like, battles I wouldn't have fought for myself. I now have to decide if I'm going to fight them for my kids because, you know, my kids obviously take their relationship with their grandparents very seriously. And so I have to decide, like, I wouldn't have stood up for myself about this, but I'm also not going to watch my kids be unpacking these bags in 20 years and be, like, dealing with this. And so we're going to, like, deal with it now. And I want to create a space for other people who are moving through it, people who have reached out to me from, you know, when we were growing up or who grew up in environments like the one I grew up in and who are saying, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing the world so differently now, and I'm healing from it, and I don't know what to do with myself, and, like, where do I go for the truth? Because nobody ever gave it to me, and so I want to be there and say, like, let me hold space with compassion for you, and let me offer you some truth and offer you some love and give you a place where that grief is okay and that messiness is okay. And and so, yeah, I don't know if that even answered your question. But... It answered it perfectly, and I think that it makes the journey lighter when people have someone that they can go to that 
can help them as they navigate their path by either giving them resources or giving them information. And thank you for talking about the grief element because that is a part of it that not a lot of people talk about. And when you're unlearning things, whatever it might be, it's also a very lonely place because normally you have people around you who have the same thoughts and ideas that you used to have. So now you kind of have to find new spaces and new people that align with this new idea set that's kind of happening. So when you have to determine what does that mean for those friendships because you've built community and friendships and um, bonds based on those common ideals mm-hmm. and so when you start to when your worldview shifts it doesn't just instantly mean you don't love these people anymore mm-hmm. and it doesn't just instantly take every like I can look at my relationship my parents and I can have very honest looks about our relationships with each other and say we're very different people and our worldviews don't align and we know that and that doesn't mean we don't love each other and that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that and so there is I think for them too my mom and I have talked honestly with each other about there's grief for them too because it does mean that those relationships change Mm -hmm. and you there's a time where you depending on whether it's friends whether it's family whoever it is there's a time where you you're still holding on to the relationship as your worldview is shifting and so there's not just grief in the in the loss of the worldview, which has its own, but there's also like the the loss of who you were under that worldview. There's some grief there. The loss of what those friendships looked like. There's going to be grief around that. And and coming to terms with that and learning to like let that be part of the process is that's rough, and it can take people their whole lives to move through that. And and that's a perfectly normal and acceptable pace to move through something that big. So it's not like you just decide one day that this is the truth and you've switched gears and now your life is better and you've got all your progressive friends and you, your life is messy. It's, it's, it's all, it's like taking cooked spaghetti and trying to lay it out one noodle at a time. And exactly. nothing breaks. Like, <laughs> that's a good way to describe it. It very much so is. And you're constantly learning and growing. And those relationships will, like, continue to change. And sometimes, like, they end up becoming easier in time. Yeah. And then sometimes something comes up. Also, my cat might be featured in the background. Because every time oh. every time I'm doing something is the time that she wants to cuddle. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mine, too. I was going to say, I don't even know where he is right now. But he, what, he was asleep on my thesis, like, 10 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> So it's the perfect place to sleep. <laughs> it's his favorite place to sleep is like last week. He's never been up on this table before. And as soon as I started laying out my research on the table next to me, it is now the only place in the house he wants to be. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Much to your point, like I, I agree with that. You when when those ideas change and when those relationships change as you grow you do have to find new ways to navigate those spaces and those relationships. And I'm guessing that there's probably a great deal of fear that possibly comes with that as well, as you're kind of shifting from having these realizations and thoughts to also kind of stepping into spaces to educate people on sex that maybe aren't as receptive to it or maybe give you pushback or maybe aren't willing to even pay for the services or see the value of it so what was navigating that fear like I think I'm still navigating it if I'm really honest I don't know I mean I guess I guess the longer I do it the easier it gets Mm -hmm. but um when I first when I well when I first got into doing any of this work I got into it selling toys Mm-hmm. And the only people I was doing those like in-home parties, like a multi-level marketing kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I've since sort of shifted my relationship to multi-level marketing, but but at the time it, it's it is what got me into this. And and so they send you like your little business in a box. And I had the idea is that you do your first event with the people you already know, right? Mm-hmm. Like you practice on your friends and family. Mm-hmm. And and we've all been practiced on by someone who's <laughs> gotten a business in a box. And so um <laughs> True. And, um, and it just, you know. And, and so I was, I'm very grateful for the people who um, let me practice on them because I, they helped me realize that the education was what I loved and not the sales. But um, <laughs> my very first time out, the people I knew were like my family, like the same family that, um, you know, that I'm having, that I'm 
having this growth from this away from and the same sort of the same people so you know my mom my aunt my cousins my so these same people that have watched me just go a different route take a different road and I think on there I think when you watch somebody take a different path than you there's a little sense of like what's wrong with my path that you don't want to be on this path you know and so I think for them my divergence from the path has been emotional too because they believe in what they believe in for you know they have really good reasons for it and so um and these are reasonable people who care about me and so there was some concern but they also support me and they're like okay so I get my business in a box and I invite these people and their friends and like the two people I knew at the time over to my house and I'm standing in front of them and I'm like all right now I have to talk about sex because that's how you sell sex toys is you talk about sex (laughs) and you and so I'm and I'm I think when I signed up for it I thought I could just rely on my knowledge of how many like speeds different things had Mm -hmm. but what I learned even that very first time was and I was I wasn't scared of the public speaking part like that's never been a fear for me um but I was a little bit nervous to talk about something so openly in a group full of people that I knew were not all married that I knew were not all like I was I was about to like tangentially endorse some things that had not been endorsed in a room full of people that had actively not endorsed them do you know what I mean so yeah. I was like oh, okay and I was like I know they're all gonna still love me and I know they know what I'm doing and they said yes and they're coming over here but this could go a lot of ways and and what ended up happening is everybody that was there was so nice to me and everybody that was there was so grateful for the space that we created um that it really wasn't about the toys at all it was about like like the toys and the wine were an excuse for a bunch of at this time it was a bunch of women who had gotten together to just have like really open conversations about stuff that they'd never had permission to have an open conversation about before Mm -hmm. and so it was like it was the first time I got to see myself do what I had always seen my mom do, which was create a safe space for people to just like show up mm-hmm. and like, and, and I, I held on to that feeling. And so how I have worked through the fear is reminding myself that the same people that give me the most pushback in private are coming to me. Like, can we please, can we talk? And the same communities of people that give me the pushback are the same communities of people from which there are people who need to be held and need to be um, received and need to be loved. And that I, I am able to, if, if I can stand up in front of these people and say penis with a straight face and hold a space where people can have a conversation they wouldn't have had before, and that's my skill and I can do that, then then it's worth it to me. My biggest fear comes from like my personal journey through this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I can stand up for someone else and stand in the gap for someone else all day. Like I truly believe that that is where my like calling is, is standing in the gap for, for someone else. But once it's time to like stand up for myself or to hold space for myself, when it's time to like correct someone about my pronouns or when it's time to like advocate for my sexual needs or when it's time to like whatever it is I am suddenly like a total embarrassed weirdo who can't find their words and so I um I think I still am unpacking the fear around my sense of self-worth with this stuff and I'm still unpacking decades of internalized messaging that it's really easy to believe for other people that they deserve better and it's really easy to believe for other people that they can shed these things and move forward and be healthy and be triumphant over kind of that oppressive voice. But then when it, you have to like apply that to you, it's hard you have to like, do that. Well, it's different, right? Like it's so, and so that's, so yeah, when I say I'm still working through it, it's because I'm still like just a big baby sometimes who like can't get their shit together. And, and so, yeah, but man, if I, if someone needs me to like go to bat for them, I will absolutely do it. But as soon as it's like time to go to bat for myself, Man, I can think of 15 things I'd rather do, including going to the dentist. Like, <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't know if anybody has a formula for self advocacy. Please that share it. Come with like a gut wrenching, <laughs> like fear. Like I'll do it anyway, but oh, it's a lot of sweat. <laughs> no, it's it's so hard, and I I can relate to that. 
I'm very good at being there for someone else or just yes, kind of are. being that anchor. But when it comes to me, it's so hard. You probably know this about me already. <laughs> well, we have met. <laughs> yes, yes, we have met. <laughs> you are, I, and I see, I see those similarities in us, that you are extremely good at creating that type of love and safety and compassion for other people you're very intuitive you're very respond well to your intuition about the needs of other people and intuitive people know they're self-aware intuitive people know what they need and i think when we get these messages about self-care i think for people like us it's not like go take a bubble bath it's like advocate for yourself it's like do that emotional labor you deserve. It's like, you know, and I think it's, it's those things we're the most afraid of that we go like everyone else is worth it. But as soon as it's time for us that we get that like fear response or that like emotional response. And so I see it in you the way I see it in me. <laughs> and I, and thank you for being honest too, because I feel like fear is a natural part of the human condition. Yes. And it is something that I feel like every human navigates to like varying degrees I can identify with giving more to others than you sometimes do yourself and also second guessing yourself a lot in ways to which you just you wouldn't treat other people like that but it's so much easier for us to treat ourselves like that and I did you hold yourself to such a high standard yeah I do want to go back to something that you said as well about how you were able to through like selling the toys and practicing on your family you were able to cultivate that safe space with people who were even in opposition to you people who maybe don't agree with some of your ideas and principles but they still come to you and that gives me hope because I've seen that happen with other people I've had it happen to me where the homophobic classmate that I had is coming to me because his sister came out and he mm -hmm. wants to know what to do or just yep. situations where people know that you are a resource and they know that you're very interconnected with not just your community, but other communities as well so that you can learn and grow. So you become an asset. You become someone that they feel safe with and trust. And that's just so important. And in a a time where we are ultra polarized and I'm not saying that it's not without validity because a lot of it is but I feel like everyone is just very angry and we aren't internalizing it as much as we used to it's basically being unleashed yes. <laughs> constantly so it's nice to see that when people are brave enough to ask the questions even if they're uncomfortable they're still coming to you to try to kind of get that guidance i do want to talk a little bit about professor sex for a second you define professor sex as a pleasure-based empirically backed medically accurate anti-racist sex education with intended adult audience this means that among other goals you celebrate sexual variety and fluidity you then state that you prioritize not only that a space is inclusive, but that it is affirming. What does affirming mean to you? It's a word that they that gets thrown around a lot lately. And I don't feel I like people really talk about what affirming really means. So what does that mean to you? I remember the first time... Like, I, I remember the first time I, I gave real thought to the difference between inclusive and affirming. It was um, Caitlin Legg. I was working at the LGBT Center, and Caitlin was my boss. Mm -hmm. And um, it was before, uh, before they moved. Um, and I had... Caitlin had come from something, and that was in the conversation. And so uh, it wasn't even a question posed to me. It was just me listening to a conversation about a different conversation or something, you know? And I, mm -hmm. but I remember thinking like, oh, affirming is different than inclusive. And I remember having like, a, I really couldn't let that thought go like for a while. Like I really couldn't shake. Um, and, and so I, I, I think I'm able to best conceptualize affirming as the way it isn't inclusive, the way it's something else. So when we think of inclusive, we think of like 
like there's always a seat at the table for you that's yeah. an inclusive like you mm-hmm. you come to the house i'm serving dinner you're welcome to sit and eat mm-hmm. right um or you come to the door i'm gonna open it to you there's a seat for you right like that's that's an inclusive way to go about something and a lot of people say affirming when they mean that they're being inclusive Mm -hmm. so they mean that um everybody's welcome here is a very like inclusive thing to say Mm -hmm. but like affirming affirm like an example of affirming would be like let's say that we're having an event and um where i choose to host the event can make the difference between it being inclusive or affirming Am I considering public transportation in where I'm hosting the event? Am I considering um, the people that live in the neighborhoods around where the event is being hosted? Am I offering, am I considering, it's like, am I considering who actually physically has access to the space and how they will access it? And will they be, will they feel like they're among peers or will they feel like they stick out like a sore thumb? You know, whatever. And so like, those are the kinds of questions you're asking yourself when you're shifting away from inclusive is, I'm going to have the event where I'm going to have it, wherever it's most convenient for me or whatever. I'm going to open the door to whoever shows up. That's very inclusive. But affirming is it's really important to me to reach XYZ community. And I'm going to do that by considering the needs of that community. I'm going to do that by incorporating the voices of the people in that community. So they're going to have a seat at the table when I'm planning this. I'm going to be reaching out to that community and asking them what do they need and doing that work there, as opposed to like, here's what I think you need and here's how I think it needs to be offered to you. And you're welcome to show up if you want it. And so I think affirming is saying, okay, not just you're welcome here, but who you are is super beautiful and important. And who you are isn't just like valid, but it is valuable. And your perspectives are valuable and your perspectives are wanted and your your perspectives are encouraged. And um, we're including the voices of those people when we're creating, whether that's creating education, whether that's creating um, uh, programming, whether that's uh, planning an event, whatever that looks like, it's, it's about, uh, really involving the diversity in the process, not just creating the appearance of diversity on like a panel. Does that that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And it's, so I talked with someone recently about this. So I won't name where I work, but it was work related. Someone was like, well, we have XYZ speaking. And I'm like, that's fantastic, but you have no marginalized individuals anywhere on this panel at all. So how do you expect to get answers and to start conversations that affect the masses of your company? And they're like, well, they don't show up to these things. And I'm like, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that is? And they're like, well, because they don't show up. And I'm like, no, it's because they don't feel like they will matter. They don't feel like they will be seen. They don't feel like they're wanted. And I'm like, a lot of times to feel like you matter, you have to be proactive and be willing to reach those individuals, be willing to start and open the conversation because people stick in areas where they know they're going to be accepted. They're not going to walk into a new area blindly. So I think it's, I think you bringing up what affirming really means is just so important. And when I saw it, it made me smile. Because it was the context that you used it in. Because a lot of people will use the word blindly, but they won't give you any context. Contextualize it. Yeah, behind it. It's like the, like when you were talking, I was thinking, it's it's like the difference between there's a part, someone has a party and they say, anyone's welcome. Or they call you and invite you to come. And there's something difference between, different between seeing on seeing a flyer on someone's Facebook versus having somebody physically call you and say I want you here to come to this that's very true like and and so you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. I technically I could be considered invited to both events like technically you Mm -hmm. know all are welcome I put the flyer up I don't know why nobody showed up versus I physically reached out to you and said hey like Kayla I really want you to come to this party and hey since you're coming I'm getting ready to plan the meal is there anything that you can or can't eat do you have anything special you'd like to drink like you know when you're like a guest at a party versus 
like the door was open and you were allowed to come in. That's and true. Affirming is like you're a guest in the space and you are welcomed there actively versus you're welcome to be there because no one's going to kick you out. This probably sounds like I'm reading right off your website, but you did say some things <laughs> that stuck right out to me. Like you also mention that you champion sexual activism in tandem with dismantling oppressive systems of power. So how does activism and oppressive systems of power intersect with sex? I think we're seeing that play out right now in these groups with these like abortion laws in Texas and some of the stuff that's being floated around. So the people um, at like a bigger, at like a big level, the people in power are the ones who get to make the decisions about what we have access to, right? Mm -hmm. And so if I don't have access to reproduct to all of the services that comprehensive reproductive health includes, if I don't have access to those, I don't get to make free decisions about, like freely informed decisions about my sex life. They are always going to be in the context of this law that limits my access to my health care, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we're saying, okay, and, and then at like a social level, if the group, like here in the South, we see it a lot with like the, um, the Baptist church, yes, like the, the, the Baptist church functions as a political entity, mm -hmm. especially here in Jacksonville, they like physically own a lot of property. I remember this would come up when we were looking for spaces to hold sex ed, uh, the, we were doing, um, Sex Ed Sunday was this event we were doing, um, and we were holding it at a coffee shop for a while. It was just free sex ed. It was two hours. Anybody could come, and we would, as a group, decide what the topic was going to be next time. And, you know, we were just like, it was That's like cool. um, this uh, sex ed commune that we had created um, <laughs> in this two-hour time block. But um, we, we very much had to be aware that the, the business that was holding space for us was putting their business in jeopardy should we draw too much attention to what we were doing because we were in a space where we were very much surrounded by properties owned by the Baptist church, mm -hmm. where we were very much influenced by that political system that the, that's created by the Baptist church. And at the moment, what we were doing seemed to not be on the up and up, we were going to be at risk. And so we, one of the things we were doing was like, because I do pleasure-based sex ed, and so I know already I'm like pushing up against things. <laughs> and um, so we were going to do like a nighttime event. It was actually Halloween, in Halloween time. And uh, the theme was like fetish and fantasy. We wanted to educate on that. And so we're doing a costume party at night, and we're calling it like Sex Ed Sunday After Dark. And I remember there being some anxiety from one of the business owners, and rightly so, about like what happens if like, this ends up like on the internet right and like mm -hmm. I wanted it on the internet because I wanted people to come but I could see that he was like completely nervous and he had a good re and he had been in situations where they had been shut down and then like we saw when we were doing um like okay even on like a more a smaller level mm -hmm. uh, talking about like systems of power in academia um, so I was, um, I started the first sex week at UNF. So I didn't start sex week as a concept, but I, um, influenced by other, uh, colleges who had done sex weeks and done them successfully. I was able to sort of lobby my position as a grad student because students get a lot of leeway to do kind of whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to like lobby my position as a grad student at the time to, um, start sex week. And the LGBT center, I was working there, so they were sort of like backing me up. And mm -hmm. the administration was not a fan of this, and it became a really big deal because it ended up in the news. People complained, I can't believe they're doing this at the school. Um, parents were writing in and complaining, you know, my kids' school shouldn't be doing this. My kids shouldn't be exposed to this. I remember um, that. Nobody, yeah, and it was a really, it was all over the news. It was a huge ordeal. And then the school went behind our backs and directly to the news and canceled um, three of the events we were having, said that they spoke with the organizers, which would have been me, and that we agreed as organizers to cancel three of these events because they weren't in line with the mission statement of Sex Week. And here I am saying, I'm inclusive and affirming, and now I've just told three talks that they can't be here because the identities that those talks represented were too wild for the university. And I was like, this can't stand. Like, that is not, I can't be associated with that messaging. That's not in line with my integrity. And so I was like, well, I'm a student. And so we got with 
other students and the students ended up putting on what they called like their alt sex week. Mm -hmm. And it was the three events that were not able to get put on. Uh, One was on kink, one was on non-monogamy and one was, it was actually one of my events. It was a sex ed through sex toys. And um, the three events that had gotten canceled, and I was like, why would I cancel my own event? And um, and so the students put it on, and they were the most well-attended events, just the show of support of people saying, we want this. And I, I think it was less about the topics at that point and more about people saying, like, again, disrupting that system of power. And so it became very much an act in all of those became an issue of our how much we were willing to risk as activists to say, do we stay in this space? How hard do we lobby? Do we just find loopholes and do it anyway? You know, whatever that is. And so I think that people um, forget how much a part of our whole lives sex really is and sexuality really is and sex education really is. It's really, it touches our relationships. It touches, um, you know, whether that's family relationships, whether that's romantic relationships, even our friend relationships, it touches how we see ourselves in the world, how we relate to other people. That's all interconnected and sex ed is all a part of that. And so any system of power that impacts our identities, that impacts our relationships, that impacts our family systems, that impacts our healthcare, any system of power that impacts any of that relates to sex and sex education. A lot of times people willfully block things out or they're just not aware of the impacts that certain things have like when you break it down when you're talking about you know the sex eds that you used to do at a coffee shop or when you're talking about that you plan to put on sex week and how that trickled down and how the how the staff and how the school itself treated it how the news sensationalized it and basically made you look bad after having the backing of the school initially so yes. <laughs> and and I think it just speaks to how important it is to champion having that education because growing up at least for me the sex education was non-existent it was that one course that you attended for an hour to an hour and 30 minutes where somebody came into your class and popped in a VHS and told you <laughs> People shouldn't touch you here, and this is what a vagina is, and this is what a penis is, and they're here, just watch a baby be born. Like... Exactly, <laughs> and there was like no attention to all of the things that come along with sex, and how identity and expression and relationships and consent and just all these things that they really didn't talk about. And it's it must be kind of refreshing to live in today's age as someone that's going to grade school where there's just so many more resources available and it just makes me so happy that someone like you exists who is there to provide those spaces and just champion all of those messages and I am so serious about that I promised myself that (laughs) it's true though it's so needed and beyond just who you are as a sex educator because you're so much more you do so many things in the community what is your goal as an advocate as a creator as an artist um well I don't big goals I'm not even I don't even know um my I guess my like since I was a child my big thing was I used to tell my mom what did I say it was something um it, there was this uh, this church group called uh, the Newsboys, and they had this song called Shine, mm-hmm. and I just used to love the and I and it just meant like be a light in the world, and I um and I remember really internalizing that that was like a thing that was possible that like because the implication was not shining was mm-hmm. like you know being like being not a light, <laughs> and I was like well shoot if given a choice right, and so I remember thinking like I just want to shine really bright and not as an attention thing but as like the way that light makes people feel warm and seen and good and and like you know like the the things that come from like a beautifully well lit like light source, and um and so I, I guess wanting to make a difference in whatever I'm doing like wanting the things that I'm doing to to have some kind of impact I can point to um and so that's been kind of the the driving goal behind like how I make decisions anymore is like is can I look at this and see that this is 
it, I can see the in the point to the impact that this has. It, does that make this a worthwhile endeavor, or do I need to walk away from this because I can't see that? And or is it costing me the ability to do that somewhere else? Because mm-hmm. everything I say yes to is a no I say somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I think if you ask Steve, he'd say I never say no to anything. Um, but I, <laughs> he's like, you're always saying yes um, because I just I like to help people. Um, but I right now like my big professional goals right now are um, I've got two big, big projects that we're working on. Um, one, I did just take on the position as COO of Tickle.life. Um, Tickle.life awesome. is a gl- Yeah, I love it. Uh, Tickle.life is a global sexual wellness platform. Half of our organization, our CEO is in India and then I'm here. So half the organization's um, in India and then we're at like a US-based organization. So, you know, a big chunk of the team is here. And um, we are a a startup and mm-hmm. so we're at a global level trying to do what i've always tried to do which is like claw out of space for ourselves and make a difference for other people and provide something that is like a quality the, the work we're doing took a lot of life um that is kind of one thing that i've really been putting a lot of um my energy in and then the other thing that we've been doing that's really been getting, aside from writing my thesis, which is gonna be over any minute. Um, the other thing that's been getting a lot of my heart has been um, the local PPLAG chapter. I am their director of sex and gender education. And we just launched what is called the SAGE program and SAGE stands for sex and gender education. And we're creating this whole library of videos and workshops that are meant to be accessible by community members so that this education is out there for people to get so that there's no reason that people won't have access to information that they need. And so we just started creating those videos, um, editing our first one now. And yeah, I'm very excited about, about that work. So those are kind of my do in terms of like professional goals. I want to see both of these things really get off the ground, really flourish, really like get their, their legs and run, but bigger goals. I just want to make a difference. And I think that you're doing that. And I think that you are exactly that light that you strive to be. So Angel, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. It's always wonderful seeing you. I think this is the first time that you and I have ever, like, spoken. I've worked with you while you're talking to other people. I think we've had, like, a few little conversations, like, here and there. But, yes, this is probably the longest, most in-depth conversation we have had. <laughs> but, no, I'm, I'm... It is delightful. It was delightful. And I'm so glad that I got to talk to you. You are always welcome back. And once more, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. As always, you are the most beloved to make all of this magic possible. I have to give an extra special shout out to Professor Sex, a.k.a. Angel Russell. They are an amazing human being. The work that they do with PFLAG, specifically Sage at PFLAG, and just the work they do outside of that in the awareness that they bring to sex education and just kind of dispelling a lot of those stigmas and myths around sex. It's been wonderful to watch their journey and the short period of time that I've known them. So show them some love, check them out. So often we get to see an individual once they're kind of producing content and really kind of putting themselves out there. But it was really cool to hear about Angel's journey. Also, I'm so sorry if y'all can hear the police sirens. I literally live at the beach behind a Whole Foods. I'm not sure why it's popping at Whole Foods and it has been strategically every time I record an outro for like the last three podcasts, but it has. So you'll just have to forgive the background noise if you can hear it. But I digress. The Raindrop Corner podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all standard streaming podcast platforms. Until next time.